HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome writers Chris Kaiser and Emily Bensinger. In this episode, we'll talk to Chris and Emily about the return of Max's acclaimed television series, Julia, and we'll get another double Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Today, we're talking Julia's inspiring trajectory as a TV star. While we often discuss the many ways Julia's life and career continue to inspire us, the TV series Julia centers on how a seemingly ordinary woman defied the conventions of her day to change society. It showcases how Julia succeeded professionally on her own terms at a time when being a devoted housewife was held up as the epitome of achievement for educated women. As her grandnephew Alex Prudhomme likes to say, Julia was a revolutionary in pearls. Julia, the scripted series, returns to Max, previously HBO Max, for its second season, brimming with good fun and good food, while also delving into how Julia was, perhaps accidentally, revolutionary. 
This show also looks at the lives of women in the workplace, not just Julia, but her friends and colleagues, amidst the backdrop of the civil rights movement and Vietnam War in a rapidly changing 1960s America. The show explores Julia's unexpected rise to stardom and imagines how she navigated it both personally and professionally. The full cast returns for season two, including BAFTA award-winning actress Sarah Lancashire as Julia, David Hyde Pierce as Paul, B.B. Newworth as Avis Devoto, Isabella Rossellini as Simca, and Judith White as Blanche Knopf, as well as adding guest stars including Rachel Bloom and Hannah Einbender. Joining us today are writers Chris Kaiser and Emily Bensinger. Chris is the showrunner and executive producer of Julia, a veteran creator, showrunner, and producer of many television series, including co-creating the long-running, award-winning series Party of Five, personal favorite of mine, in the mid-90s. And since then, Chris has shepherded many television series, including Lone Star on Fox, Tyrant on FX, The Last Tycoon on Amazon, and The Society on Netflix. He is widely respected as a leader in Hollywood, having served as president of the Writers Guild of America from 2011 to 2015, and, if his name is sounding somewhat familiar, as the co-chair of the 2023 Negotiating Committee during the recent WGA strike, which was resolved last month with significant gains for writers. Chris also knows Boston and Cambridge well as a Harvard College and Harvard Law School alum. Emily is a producer and writer on Julia. She was previously a staff writer and executive story editor on Netflix's The Society and a story editor on Hulu's The Vampire Chronicles. On the film side, Emily adapted The Lost Girls of Paris for Focus Features and the best-selling young adult novel The Outliers for Lionsgate. She holds a BA in English Lit from UC Santa Cruz and an MFA in screenwriting from UCLA. She and her husband, who was a bomb squad officer in the U.S. Army, lived all over the U.S. as well as in Europe and India before returning to Los Angeles, where they both grew up. Julia, produced by Three Arts Entertainment for Lionsgate Television, is streaming only on Max, and new episodes appear weekly starting November 16th, with the final episode dropping December 21st. And for full disclosure, I'm a consulting producer on the show on behalf of the Foundation. Chris and Emily join us today for a behind-the-scenes look and a preview of Julia Season 2. Welcome to the podcast, Chris and Emily. Thanks, Todd. It's good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, we're very excited to, to introduce the second season to the world. Well, we're excited to talk about it and have you do that. So, yeah, Chris, why don't we start with you? And I want to back up a little second before season two, because uh, this is uh, first time you've been on Inside Julia's Kitchen. And so I wanted to hear from, from you as one of the earliest people to get involved with the show. What was it that really interested you in Julia's story overall and, and especially focusing on, on this part of her life? Yeah, first of all, I don't want to step on my Julia moment, so I don't want to talk too much about where Julia and I intersected early in my life. But she has been, at least um, as a, a memory of growing up and connecting to the food world since I was a very young child. And when the opportunity arose, I, I jumped at it because for reasons that are sometimes hard to put into words, she seems to mean something to almost everybody and to me too. And we can talk about that at, at, at some point. But uh, this was particularly exciting because 
the idea of telling a part of Julia's life that had not been told, at least wasn't told, for example, in the movie Julia and Julia, and sometimes it's not as much of the focus of people who like to imagine what was going on with her and Paul during the war. We were able to explore some subjects that interest me, Daniel Goldfarb and Emily and the other writers, uh, to list a couple of them, just the idea of a second act story, what happens when somebody starts again in midlife and makes something of themselves, something unexpected. Uh, it was an opportunity to talk about the evolution of a modern marriage, Paul and Julia's marriage. They began in a somewhat more traditional way, although they were always idiosyncratic, but with Paul as the, as the, the outward facing member of that that pair and Julia supportive and then turned into a marriage in which Julia was the one in the spotlight and Paul was, though a true partner, um, a little bit more in her shadow and how she and Paul navigated that as true partners. That was also really interesting to us. And then that that superimposes on this period, as you already mentioned, in America, where so much was changing and Julia was part of that change. Uh, and uh, that was just, that was so much fodder for a television series that it seemed like an, an obvious choice to say yes and to, well, to start doing what we've been doing for the last couple of years. And Emily, as a, if you don't mind me saying, younger generation writer on the team, I was curious Oh my God, you, please <laughs> say that again. <laughs> as as you having a different um, maybe a, a initial exposure to Julia, like did you know a lot about her when when you got approached, or what was it for you that was attractive? Was it similar to what Chris said, or or, or different? No, and I, it's it's very dissimilar, and I I don't think it's necessarily because of my incredible undying youth. I think <laughs> <laughs> I didn't grow up in a very food oriented family. Um, so we didn't have a copy of mastering, like I think so many people did. And, uh, I didn't, I think there's the cultural osmosis, you know, you hear that name, you know, the SNL skit and, and you know what she looks like and sounds like, but I didn't have that connection to Julia until after college when I really started cooking, which I, I'll save that for the Julia moment too. But, um, yeah, it was a little different for me. And okay, on that note, so we've set the stage of, of how you're both coming to this from 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 different perspectives and different exposures to Julia. So Chris, now in season two, uh, can you take us through what viewers can expect and, and also how it both follows on from season one and maybe how it diverges as well? Sure. Yes. I mean, if you remember if you uh, from season one, we left Julia pretty successful at that point. We had followed her path from the conception of food television, though she didn't know she was doing it quite at the time, um, and her rise rather quickly to a television personality, both in on public television, but then broadly speaking in America. Uh, the picking up of a second season of that show, which was lucky for us that that did GBH did that right in the middle of their of our first season, um, and then critically for Julia, a moment of uncertainty at the very end of the first season as to what the meaning of her path was. Uh, you know, if she you, when you talk about her being de uh, described as a as a kind of revolutionary in pearls, that contradiction, the idea that she seemed to be both a throwback and a pathfinder was part of what we were very fascinated to explore. And she began to wonder, at least in our version of the Julia story, whether she was actually moving women 
family's America forward or whether she was a reflection of something that had passed, the idea of women stuck in the kitchen. In the end of the first season, people remember, Paul, he doesn't have the last word, but he makes the final argument, which is that Julia is not really about that necessarily. What what her show is about is joy and the pleasure of being in her company. And I think that convinces her. But she also knows at the end that she needs a break. And we're promised at the end of the first season that that a invitation from Simca for her to return to France to join her to just to be together, but also to work on part two of mastering was going to be accepted. She tells GBH that she's not going to start season two until she's had some time in France. And so when we begin our season two, GBH is waiting for her to return. And Julia has spent three months in France with Simca, um, not getting very much done, but enjoying just being there and enjoying their sisterhood and the complexity of their of their relationship and the season will take us through her and Paul's time in France it, we have the first three episodes set in part in both the south of France and in Paris it will then return them to Boston where GBH is changed because of Julia to an America that's changed in the years after the assassination of President Kennedy uh, and with a commitment on Julia's part to be uh, at the forefront of that change. And the this, this season is all about change. It's all about the, the things that happen to every character, the way in which Julia's success and the implications of that success, both in the at GBH and beyond in the world, affect her and the choices she makes and how comfortable she is with that and what it means for her to be a public figure at a moment of, as you say, where the Vietnam War becomes a question that Americans have to wrestle with, and the civil rights movement does, and the feminist movement does, all of those things pose questions, challenges for Julia that she rises to in various ways, or, you know, has trouble rising to here and there, because we try to paint her, though, she is a remarkable woman who, in in the end, as we know, uh, you know, was a, was truly a, a, a a breaker of rules and a changer of the world, but she was still a product of the world in which she lived. And she was a a lot of contradictions. And and we love that about her. She was very human. And so we, we pay a lot of attention to that. And then at the same time, as I said, almost every other character in the show, uh, whether it's Paul Child or Avis Devoto or Judith Jones or Ross Marash or Alice, they all go through questions of how they're going to, how their lives are going to change, what they're going to do in light of the fact that they now sort of operate in the penumbra of this extraordinary woman who's taking over American culture. Yeah, no, I, that, that's a, a great uh, encapsulation of both season one and the, and, and the kickoff for season two. So Emily, just to throw it over to you, as Chris was just describing, the show has many layers. And I think what's fun and unique about it is it's both got a large dose of nostalgia to it. It's a period piece. But it's also blended with, or at least this is my impression of, of what's on the page and on the screen, with this pretty actually contemporary commentary or maybe lens about women's roles in the workplace. And I was curious to hear from you how the writers kind of approached blending, mixing these two aspects of nostalgia and a contemporary lens looking at the story. It's it's one of the hardest parts about the show and also that I think the most satisfying is is trying to get that balance right. The, I think the biggest challenge is so much of what Julia and Alice and Avis and Judith are 
dealing with on the series, the sexism in particular is, is, I mean, it's, it's access to contraception and it's sexism in the workplace. It's stuff that is still obviously a huge issue today. And trying to look at that through their lens and not put a contemporary lens on it, even though it's something that is so much in the ether of, of this time period is um, that's, that's sort of where we, we always have to remind ourselves there's a fatigue now and a frustration that was not true. Not that there wasn't fatigue and frustration in Julia's time either, but that we have to look at from, where they're coming from and what they're coming out of politically. And um, that part, I think it's, it's fun and it's a writing challenge. And uh, I think the nostalgia adds to that. It helps, it helps make that um, gets you into that mindset of, of what it was like in the 1960s when there was so much change. And I think everything maybe felt more exciting and terrifying. Whereas today, I think maybe there's a bit of ennui about these conversations or frustration, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I'm struck by actually what you're reflecting is it's also like we've got this triple lens, which is it's a show about a show in, mm-hmm. in part. And that but also you're reflecting in a period way how women were feeling and reacting that typically would not be depicted in a show of its time or a show about its time. So that's what's new. It's not that women were not having those feelings or rolling their eyes at the men. It's that that was generally not depicted in fictional content at the time. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's it's so fun to go back and get to show those moments that I don't think you did get to see and imagine what those women would actually be saying and feeling behind the scenes. Um, and it lets us be, I think, pretty funny sometimes. And that is always my favorite is when you get to be subversive and funny. Yeah. Talking, I, can I, didn't you, you wrote this stuff, uh, I think in episode five, right. Where Alice talks about, it. I'm going to talk about the things that women talk about in bathrooms and in hallways and things like that, that never get talked about in public. Right. That, that mm-hmm. was the, yes. We're really explicit about that. Well, I was going to say, Chris, too, I I don't know who, if there's one particular writer who takes the lead with Alice and her character, because Alice is one of, there are other fictionalized characters, but in terms of the core group, one of the most invented for the show. And I just think Alice gets all the great things where, you know, she's the smartest kid in the room, surrounded by all these guys who she thinks are, you know, dummies full of hot air. And I feel like her reactions to them are just so wonderfully rich and enjoyable. I hope so. I think that's what we're we're going for. I'd say, first of all, there's no one who we don't write in a way that anyone takes ownership over a given character. The way the writing staff works is that we all we are all talking about everyone and everyone writes every character. But look, I mean, as you as you said, and I, I think I want to you know emphasize this. It, this is a comedy, and and it's it's hard is. Julia's, you know, the reflecting Julia's sense of humor about the world and joyfulness. So one of the ways that we handle all of these things is with a very light touch. I hope no one feels as if they're being lectured to about, uh, you know, morality of one uh, one thing or another. I don't, I don't think it comes off that way. And maybe that's one of the things that 
lets us get away with handling all of this stuff. That we always come back to the idea that it's, it's it's not easy to be optimistic, broadly speaking, about everything that's happening in the world. And certainly, it's not today. And the '60s is maybe as good a parallel time as we have to today, where things were really fraught and and things were up in the air, and it wasn't particularly clear whether society was going to hold together very well. But there were also maybe more than today some hopes and dreams of moving forward and uh, that are reflected in Julia's sense of optimism, even though we also try to be realistic about the the barriers to that. I mean, you know, the fact that Julia broke down barriers does not mean that every woman everywhere, or every person of color uh, was able to do that. It doesn't mean that the Vietnam War ended anytime soon after it began. So all these things are the backdrop to the story of a group of incredible people who as much as they could bent the world to the way they wanted it to be, but the world pushes back. And, uh, and sometimes that does, I hope it does create comedy in our case, but it always creates friction. Mm-hmm. And I have to also just add that Brittany Bradford, who plays Alice is remarkable. I mean, she, she brings a, a lightness and a realness to that character that I think allows Alice to deal with such difficult situations with so much grace and so much humor. No, I agree. It's very well played. I was going to ask you, Emily, uh, it's not accidental because the show is a hundred percent scripted and, and I'll say as kudos to the writing team, what people (laughs) see on TV is pretty much exactly what's written. And that is exceptionally rare. That's how well written the show is. Um, I wanted to ask you about the decision that Russ constantly calls Alice pal. And, and and that's not accidental. And I was just curious of, for a little behind the scenes insight of, of what that conversation is or why the writers decided that that Russ would, you know, often refer to her that way. Oh, we, if I, Chris, I can't remember exactly how that came up, but it, it was just one of those things that I think can happen in a workplace when you have a someone who is your superior, who treats you like a friend when it's convenient, but also demands your work and attention on a whim because they are your boss and and how frustrating that is for the person who works underneath it but how uh it can just it just is so um the obliviousness of it is i think really funny yeah isn't it i, I think frequently we use the obliviousness of prejudice as a, a, a creator of story so russ is simultaneously um He's slightly demeaning and also somewhat inclusive in calling her pal. And that's not, it's not, it is neither a small thing because she's a young woman of color in the early or mid, early mid 1960s. Uh, but she's also a young woman of color in a workplace in the early mid 1960s. And so that contradiction that's, that's represented by the, by calling her pal seemed to us to be because it just gets under Alice's skin in a funny way, just a really good way of, of demonstrating the complexity of what it must've been like for somebody in Alice's shoes or Judith in her workplace or Avis and at Harvard, or obviously Julia to navigate um, a world mostly of, of white men. We do a lot of, of one of my favorite kinds of humor, which is eye roll humor where just someone is, on another planet (laughs) the person who's actually on earth gets to just they have to take it but they take it with an eye roll which i think it always makes me laugh when i see things like that yeah no i think that there is great capturing in the show of that and i think 
it's interesting because if you put it in a modern parlance, it's actually an example of a microaggression, and which I think is often hard for people who aren't generally at the end of a microaggression to understand what they are. But I think it's kind of a great thing because Alice clearly doesn't like it, finds it demeaning, can't do anything about it. And weirdly, as Chris was saying, Russ, as the character Russ, is oblivious to it. And he doesn't necessarily mean it to be harmful. Like Chris, you were saying, he he's meaning to kind of like, he thinks he's trying, he's saying something that is is inclusive when it's actually kind of offensive. Yeah, it's, just, it's, yeah, it's ignoring the, the power structure, I think, which you can do when you are the person in power. Look, this is this is, I guess, maybe it's it's too inside about the the process of trying to write a television show, but it's sort of fun to think about. Is you know, when you're doing a, a relatively brief, breezy, mostly comedy that has at its heart some serious subjects, how do you handle all of that stuff? Well, you know, really hard, intense prejudices, whether they are based on sex or race or anything, that's tough in tonally in a show like Julia. So in some ways, though, this does not reflect, it certainly does not reflect the most difficult examples of what it must have been to be a woman or a person of color in the 1960s. It's our way of being able to be true enough to that world, say, and yet um, touch on on subjects that ha- in a way that allow us to keep our tone intact. It's a, it's a really delicate game. And I don't know that it's, it, it's, it's not intended to be dishonest because we don't have to tell every story about what exists in the world, but you know, we, we are, we have to be careful about how we do that. And one of the ways we do it is the kind of the banality, as you would say, of prejudice, the, the mm-hmm. casual way in which the implications of that to the, the listener, the, the object of the prejudice um, is is delivered by the by the person in power. It also it helps that Alan Powell rhyme that helped. <laughs> that's that. Oh, that's right because he sometimes he sometimes calls her Al too, right? Yeah. Which is equally yeah. like your. I guess in his mind it's one of the boys, but not a name that she cares to be referred to by. So. I was feeling really, that was probably at the root of how he came up with that. Just Alan uh, and, and for us, it's really interesting because obviously the Julia that everyone knows is the Julia, the public Julia, and the public Julia is so so relaxed and certain about how she navigates the world and all of the the obstacles she had to overcome, not just as a woman, but a middle aged woman and a woman who was not you know traditionally beautiful. It didn't sound all the all of those things that we talk about and that everyone knows about her. That she has the ability to do that. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's what it was like when the door was closed in her bedroom with Paul, nor does it mean that everyone else has the same ability to do that as Julia has. It's a gift that actually, I mean, it, it does, as Emily said, sort of in some ways also by osmosis affect the people who are around her. But it would be unfair to tell a story in which every character has Julia's ability to uh, to deflect with humor and and confidence the the things the world throws at you. Yeah, I think that's also something that writers have really well captured is Julia's um, facility with language to be both uh, respectful, but get her way or put people in their place in a way that it where they need to be put in their place. Um, Like with uh, um, Albert on 
Albert, I'm blanking yeah. on the right na- name for mm-hmm. I, the I've been reading host. You yeah, know. It's hard because we have Alfred Knopf and Albert Duhamel, <laughs> so like we always get this. <laughs> okay, so it's not just me. Yeah, but know, like, you know, I think you captured so well that she puts him in his place and it takes about three seconds before he realizes he's been insulted. And 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 that was something that Julia was, was the real Julia was really skilled at doing. So, right, um, right. But you know the thing, Todd. I, I hope I'm not taking you too far away from your question. But the thing that the, at the heart of this season, though, is Julia's sometimes difficulty in being at the forefront of change and the way that she handles that. It's hard to be the, the changes that come because she's famous and what that means about the way the world deals with her, what it means to deal with uh, people, women and men who are now either collaborators or work for her. All of those things become. The, the central question, it, we begin the series, the season, with the question, am I an advocate for change or not? And Julia wants to be. And of course, we said, of course, she is ultimately in her life in many ways. But but she's not idealized in, in the show uh, because she is human, though remarkable. And the, 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 the comic and dramatic tension of this season is really what, what part is Julia going to be prepared to play in the changes of the world. She you know, she becomes many things later in life, like an advocate for Planned Parenthood, but but she doesn't she's not born that way. And the question is, how did she get there? And that's what we're trying to talk about in this season. Well, that's right. I said the show has layers. So we're going to come back after break and we're going to talk delve into more of those uh, laminations. And uh, <laughs> we'll be back with more about Julian Max with writers Chris Kaiser and Emily Bensinger. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Julia on Max, season two, showrunner Chris Kaiser and writer-producer Emily Benzinger. All right. So, Chris, we were just talking about lamination and layers of the show. And uh, one of the most, the surface layer of onion, if you will, just to get way into puns and analogies, (laughs) metaphors. Um, Why did the writers decide you set up the intention to go to France, but I, I w- was very much there at the end of season one and we begin there in season two, but I wanted to delve why, cause it's a show set in Boston. Actually, if you think about if someone says, where's the show set, it's Boston. So w- why did you decide you should and needed to go to France? Oh yeah. There, there are lots of answers to that. And we can chip in too on this because it was a conversation. Yeah, I'll tell you the truth. Beginning. Yeah, exactly. They, I'm gonna. They I'll wanted to the go to France. Exactly. <laughs> what? 
We're not, yeah, we're I not. know that part of it, which is everyone decided before the show even started that they would be going to France, right? Provence in the, in the spring, that sounds... Okay, so how did you creatively back into the justification? Well, first of all, we wanted to go to France in season one, and COVID made it impossible to do that. Um, so there are mm-hmm. a bunch of different answers to that. You know, In some ways, the practical TV answer is we really love the relationship between Julia and uh, Simka. We loved Isabella Rossellini. And because the show was set in Boston and and Simka is in the south of France, she functioned more or less on a tele, the end of a telephone in season one. We didn't want that. We wanted to put those two incredible women, both the characters and the actresses, in the same room. And the only way to do that, really, truthfully, was to send Julia back to France. And by the way, of course, it's also true, Julia does go back to France. She eventually um, you know, builds uh, a, a house on, on on Simka's property, and so we're also somewhat true to the story. So there's a there's a practical television. We want to say, have scenes there. Also, second season, you want to make it bigger and better. You want a second season of a television show wants to be the same but different, or different but the same is probably the better way to put it. And one of the ways we did that, we expanded the horizons, is we brought Julia and Paul and others. Uh, I won't give everything away to the south of France and to Paris, and it just gives the show a scope and a beauty that uh, is sort of irresistible. I mean, the show is a is essential experience in a lot of ways. We have great craftspeople on the show: Trisha von Brandenstein, who's our our production designer, and John. Done our costume designer and Eric Monier, who's the EP, and then Christine Tobin, who does all the food. I mean, their work is is visual, and you can taste it and feel it. And then so to send them all to France was was really exciting to do. But then there was this other emotional thing, which is it, the, the series is about change and where you go from where you started. And so we wanted at least once early on to send Julie and Paul back, not to where they started, obviously, because they met out, they didn't meet in France, but but Julia's formative years in transforming to somebody in the cooking world happened in Paris. And Paul's work uh, in Paris after the war was really important. So that it becomes metaphorically meaningful to us for them to come to terms with who they were and who they want to be in the future. What does your past mean? Uh, for, uh, you know, and, and how much do you hold on to it and how much do you let it go? And there are lots of other things, but I don't want to give anything away. But that's the that's the multi-layered reason for why we went back to, why we went to France at the beginning of the season. Emily, do you want, do you want to add some truth to, to what Chris well, said? Well, I, I, I think that is true. I guess it wasn't just Chris and Daniel wanting to go <laughs> spend some time in the south of France. You know, it, it, it especially... Learning to coming to understand what France meant to Julia and Paul and to the food and the tension between where you're from and where we're going. It also comes through in in how Simka and Julia approach cooking and and what the French chef really is. Uh, so I think it was also really important to understand that aspect of Julia's life because the French chef, she's making French food for Americans. And that's, there's a lot of conflict in that. I was going to say that also without giving too much away, the results are just terrific in watching two amazing actresses, Sarah Lancashire and Isabella Rossellini go tete-a-tete of as real people who existed, Julia Child and Simca back in there, it's it's just delicious. It's just incredible to watch. I mean, Chris, did, did the results exceed everyone's expectations or you kind of, with the two of them, expected that? 
there's no good way to answer that question, is there, Todd? I can say yes. <laughs> I, I didn't Sorry. think that highly or no. <laughs> so let me just say it turned out very well. I will also say that, and probably Emily's a better person to talk about this than I am, but this shows a lot about how women, you know, relate to women. I mean, not just how they relate to men in a male dominated society, but women's relationships. And that is a central relationship in, in Julia's life. Emily? Yes, I think, I think there, the, it was also so important to go to France because for that that reason. Their relationship was so remarkable. I mean, these women who really were sisters, they did meet later in life in completely different stages of their lives. And they bonded over food, but they, they had a partnership and a, a sisterhood that you don't see very often. And, and without giving too much away again, I think what was accomplished in this season for the two of them is, is really moving. Um, it's really hard when you love someone and you feel that they're drifting and your relationship, I mean, their relationship is facing a lot of changes because of Julia's fame and because of the, what she wants to do with French food. And, and in a lot of ways, Simca represents the old guard and Julia, the new, and their love for each other is, is so unique and pure and, and how are they going to maintain that when there's so much pulling them apart is a, it's, it's, it's very fun to watch where it goes. And those two actresses, they're unbelievable together. It's so much fun and it's so enjoyable. And I really just, just to put it out there, hope the Academy recognizes it when they see it. <laughs> um, right. And not yeah, the I'm French like, Academy. Yes, like who cares about that? Um, <laughs> looking for season three. Emily, I w- you know, Chris mentioned you wrote episode five, and, and I wanted to ask you, it's a little tricky because we don't want to give too much away, um, but, you know, that that's more than halfway through season two, and by then you're back in Boston. Everyone's back in Boston except for Simka. And um, Julia's really you juggling a lot, both on the personal side and on the professional side, as Chris has talked about with all the the changes and the pressures of, of success. And I was just curious for you by the time and episode five has some unique elements. And so I'll leave it to you decide what you can and cannot reveal. But, um, you know, what did you love about doing that episode? And do you have a favorite part that you can talk about or just about, you know, being, being charged with being the, the lead writer on it? Oh, Chris, I, I def- am I allowed to? I think so. Why not? Yes, yes. It's not. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, it's it's so it is. It's the episode where Paul's twin brother comes to call, and I won't go into that too much. But the the joy of the episode, well, first of all, just double David Hyde Pierce is is a great idea. It's always a good idea to have more David Hyde Pierce. I think. Um, yes, the cherry on top of Isabella and Sarah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so that it, doing the the technical aspect of doing twins was very interesting. Erica Dunton, who directed the episode, was incredible. So watching that process was I learned a lot, um, and I learned I will never be a director. I could not figure out what was going on. It looks amazing. It it really does. <laughs> like the twins. Um, so had you written, had you written twins before, especially twins going tete-a-tete? Never identical. We did have twins on the society. Um, 
And again, without giving too much away, I think the, I'm, I'm very interested in siblings and how, you know, your siblings shape who you are and twins, especially that's, it's, it's from birth, obviously. So, I mean, before birth. So that relationship is incredibly important. And what was really fun about getting to write this episode was doing the research on Charlie and Paul, because it's just a deep, deep well of craziness. They, they were brought up again, without giving too much away, just, they had a very well, all of that's true, though, right? These are things that are that are already out there in the world. <laughs> yeah, it was Alex Prudhomme's book that I where I got most of the information on him. So yeah, they had a very contentious but very uh, important relationship. They were huge in each other's lives. They were they were rivals. Charlie had a lot of um, uh, he was given a lot of benefits that Paul was not by their mother, which is incredibly complicated. And I think most important for the episode was we got to learn a lot about Paul and how much he approached the world with grace. And I think that that also how Julia sees Paul was it was my favorite part of the episode is I think there's a line that Paul actually did say about being Julia's husband, where he said that um, Julia is the tip of the iceberg. She's the exposed, shining part of the partnership, but he's beneath her, holding her up. He's, he's the rest of the iceberg. And I think to, to feel that way about your marriage is so extraordinary. To feel that way as the the husband in that marriage is incredibly progressive and moving and Paul was just such a confident whole person and it was fun to try and write that for him. Well, I think it's beautifully captured and I think as you guys talked about earlier in the show, the episode also it captures all of those things. It's brilliantly funny and entertaining and joyful, but that the these moments of of insight on human condition and relationships between family members that are complicated. You just comes across so well. Chris, did oh, you, good. did you want to add anything? To... No, I, I, yes, I disagree. I don't, I know, no, it's, it, it is, it's one of my, uh, it's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a funny episode because Julia is going through a lot at, at work, uh, which I don't want to give away, but but as Emily said, in a way that's a little bit parallel to episode three of the first season in which Julia's father comes back and Julia and Paul and her father uh, have this fascinating three-way relationship. That three-way relationship amongst Julia, Paul and Charlie is actually very moving uh, in many ways. So, uh, you know, and, it, and it's, it's a little bit of a technical achievement, as, as Emily said. So it's a, it's, a nice, it's a nice middle point of the season. Well, I haven't yet rewatched it on a large screen, but from what I saw, the technical achievement, it, it's, it was pretty seamless. Because usually when you watch people play twins, and particularly the same actor playing them, it, 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 you know, kind of see little glitches where you're like, but they're, I, I thought technically it came across amazingly. Yeah, not, and since it was... parent, not since Parent Trap, has anyone <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You mean the Lindsay Lohan version, of course. Obviously. 
I cool. I also David they're, they're too young for the was, Patty Duke show, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I don't know how young you guys think I am, but I'm really happy about it. Um, I uh, I also David did the most remarkable job becoming Charlie because he is so mm. Paul and he was able to, he had to do each scene twice as, as both brothers. And he would come as Charlie and you would know he was Charlie just the way he carried himself. And, and uh, it was, it was very, very cool to see that part too. And there's a scene where they, they sing together, which is one of my favorites. So they do a duet of life is just a bowl of cherries where Paul, where David plays both parts, sings both parts um, plays the piano twice. Uh, it's just, it's really fun. It's really fun to watch. And you would have I, no problem knowing which brother he is. No, yeah. And, yeah, it's, yeah. It's and he even changed cool. the way he speaks. Like the way he does Paul, his voice for Paul is slightly, brings him more like of a New Englandy accent for Charlie, right? He doesn't even say the lines the same way. I think one of the things that is so remarkable about both Julia and Paul, they live these unbelievably adventurous lives before Julia ever thought about making a television series. And Paul was so talented. He could paint, he could play piano. And uh, it's, it's just, it's amazing to me what they were not putting up on the surface. And I think one of the things that is so nice about the show is we get to unravel um, naturally, like how talented and how cool they were beyond what you know. And and so it was nice in this episode to get to go into that part of Paul too. Yeah, I was going to say something else, but I'm going to follow up on what Emily said. One of the things that I love about making the show is that we have all of these characters around Julia, Paul, uh, Judith Jones, Blanche Knopf, uh, Russ Marash, everybody, Avis too, and Alice, as you said, who's who's not a not a real person, a composite of people who are really really extraordinary in their own lives. They she is surrounded by a bunch of people who are geniuses in their own way, and I don't want to overuse the the word genius. They're all so um, overshadowed by Julia, who becomes one of the couple of people in that era whom everyone knows. And so you don't know them as well. Obviously you might never have. There are, there are so many remarkable people who go who who remain unknown to the world. But it's just a it's just this circle of remarkableness, of brilliance that and their language, their use of language, their ability to play with that and with each other, uh, to access their emotions and to react mostly in a, a interesting, mature, emotional way with the rest of the world, but not always, um, is actually part of the pleasure of doing the show. It's just, I guess it's, you know, we're lucky because we're in Cambridge in the 1960s and Cambridge is around Harvard is one of those places. Robert Lowell was like that with his literary circle. But you get these these moments when extraordinary people gather together. Sometimes they all get the attention. Here, Julia is the person the world knows, but we get to introduce everybody else as spokes in the wheel where Julia is the hub. Yeah. It's, it's one of the frustrating parts of the show too, because you, you read a Wikipedia page for Judith Jones and you want to tell her entire story because she was so extraordinary, but I mean, there's only so much space and Julia takes up all of it because she was so, so extraordinary. 
Well, and I was clocking after uh, watching episode one that you even now have an intersection that was written totally independently with the Manhattan Project and the Oppenheimer phenomenon now that just it sort of pops in a way that it didn't before that was centered in people's cinematic experience now. So it's that's true. I don't think we even we obviously weren't even thinking about that when we did. No, you were. It was written well before. Yeah, I know. And now it just sort of. Like, right. There are a lot of things, by the way, without giving things away. Episode three has some thematic things that were meaningful to us when we wrote it, but have meaning in the world today far beyond what we expected. And people will know that when they watch it. But um, sometimes you get lucky when you make TV that you intuit stuff in the world and then the more than it, it interacts with other people thinking the same things. I guess that's not true mm-hmm. of this thing I'm talking about now. It's unfortunate. <laughs> it's going out of the world right now. Yeah, so no, you're right. Well, you, you were, the Oppenheimer you, one is one of those, but this is, it's just, an, it's a way in which uh, Julia, as she often does, intersects with the world over and over again and through the decades and remains relevant. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Julia and Christopher Nolan. The two of them, yes. <laughs> well, exactly. And I was going to say, because Chris, what you're referring to anti-Semitism, which you could say, though, you it was a conscious decision of the writers to include that in the series because it was relevant to the time in Paul's story. But it also was conscious in the writers' minds that this is still a topic that needs to be addressed. That's true. We just didn't think at that point that it would be so much uh, <laughs> as, as a forefront. Yes, it's not. We were we were not hoping to be quite yeah. as relevant as yeah. as we as we see. That is be. the yes. uh, the joy and the challenge of doing a period piece is is how little things change, how much things change, and then how little things change all over again. Don't you think? Yes, there's a character in episode three who says we are who we are who we are. Mm. Okay, before we, uh, on that uh, pensive note, um, (laughs) I would be remiss on this podcast (laughs) and with this show if we don't. It's a fun show, Todd, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Now that everyone's crying. It's a comedy. (laughs) Yes, it is a comedy. Um, Let's talk about the food. And so Chris and, and, and Emily certainly weigh in is... You know, in season one, I know the whole approach was very intentional about how the food is represented and included in the show. You guys mentioned the wonderful Christine Tobin, you know, down to what the characters ate, where they ate, and then how it was recreated in the, the filming of The French Chef. So tell us more about how does food feature in season two? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, of course, food is what brings everyone together in this in this story. And it's no less true in the second season than the first. But we we had to deal with the burden of the past. You can't just keep making the same food and have the audience say, wow, it's still great. <laughs> no, it's still beautiful. So we we upped our game a little bit, I think, and and included food in all the ways we had before. There are a bunch of episodes in which we focus on food and uh, the French Chef episodes. Episode eight does that in a big way. Emily's episode does too. Um, but not all the episodes do. In other places, they're just huge feasts. So France features an enormous feast. Paris features an enormous feast. There's an episode in which Julia goes, I don't, maybe I don't want to give this away, uh, to a, a you know, on the road and is part of an enormous feast. And so we just, we celebrate food and the way people are fed and the meaning of coming together over food in different and maybe bigger ways. We also played around with it a lot in season two. So there's really fun stuff of, um, of Judith and Paul 
going back to the their partnership, which they started when they were making the doing the bread chapter of uh, of part two. So um, we just yes, it we continue the theme. We try to vary it somewhat because we understand that that's the that's the obligation of uh, of a television series. We really make a meal of it. <laughs> there you go. Wine. <laughs> Emily, do you, do you, do you want to say anything more? So Chris has covered with, he's, he's kept his cards close to his vest and just, just teased everyone that it's full of feasting. Do you, do you, do you want to say anything more? No, now I'm scared. I would just say, <laughs> I, 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 it's, 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 um, it's still so much about the food, but it's also not giving away what the feasts are, but the, 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 the politics of food and the uh, importance of meals and, uh, and what food can accomplish. I think that's incredibly vague, but that's. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, but that, but it's true, Emily. I mean, I think about it. There episode seven is a lot about the meaning of who, who gets to cook for whom and how, that that that's part of the power struggle uh, structure of the world. It's really interesting in that way. And in episode two, food is about sharing and generosity and the meaning of uh, of all of that. And always through the whole thing, the progress of what we cook and how is is metaphorically a part of the conversation about change. So, mm-hmm. when obviously Julia changed the way America thought about food, uh, she didn't entirely changed the way we eat. We don't all eat haute cuisine um, from France, but she changed our relationship to food. And now Julia's relationship to even the food she cooks changes over the course of the season. And uh, there are a couple of dishes that are that are really central to that. Uh, I mean, I know, again, we're being a little vague, but I want to save some of the fun for actually watching mm-hmm. the episodes, as opposed to our vivid, vivid descriptions, which could be... <laughs> All right, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we'll get another double Julia moment. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. After all those Julia moments of this season, you're going to have to narrow it down. Chris, what's your Julia moment? I feel a little bit like I should say everything I have ever done was inspired by Julia Child. And why not? To get <laughs> uh, but I'm not going to go that far. Um, it's funny because Emily said that her family wasn't a food family. My family wasn't a food family either. I, I grew up in the 60s. I mean, I was born in the 60s. And so, uh, and by the way, my Julia moment has something to do with Emily's episode also, or it's reflected in Julia's episode, but uh, in uh, Emily's episode. But I have very clear memories of watching The French Chef when I was a very little boy with my parents, not because we were making food together, but just because we wanted to watch Julia. And specifically, I have a memory, and I don't think there are very many episodes of television that I remember all these number of years later. I don't want to say how many, because I am slightly older than Emily, and also maybe slightly older than her parents. Um, but it's uh, the, the episode where Julia makes Bouche de Noël. I, I have this as a little boy watching, and I'm a Jewish family, in watching this this 
and we grew up with, you know, the, the cake in my family was was Sara Lee chocolate cake and an, an aluminum pan. And this woman who's making a thing that actually looks like a log and meringue that looks like mushrooms and spun sugar. And I don't obviously have any memory of decades and decades later how I must have felt about that. But the fact that I, I have had a persistent memory of watching her make that Bouche de Noël, and I've never forgotten it, and it made me in part want to do this television series immediately, and just reflects how even people who would never think about recreating her recipes were enchanted by her. I think just speaks to the way in which, in ways you cannot put into words particularly, you don't really understand, says that she just she just gets into inside of you, under your skin, and you say, I, I love the, the kind of fun artistry of that. This is what it was. I mean, it was like an art project. It was an edible art project that felt humorous and beautiful. I've looked back at the episode, by the way, later on, and obviously it looks like a television show in black and white, a little <laughs> grainy now, and the whole thing seems a little less magical now. And I think, well, that, well how did that capture me? But as, at that point, knowing what we knew then, watching what we what, the way we used to watch, her turning cake into that thing um, was was one of the couple of moments in of TV that I have remembered for the rest of my life. Love it. We've never had a Boost and Well uh, Julia moment. So thank you, Chris. Is it wrong? Did I, I get it wrong? Am I wrong? Am I wrong about it? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. I watched I watched that episode so many times for uh, episode five. It's such it is really amazing what she does. The mushrooms are killer. <laughs> All right, Emily, what's your Julia moment? My Julia moment was it started. Uh, I so I again I did not grow up knowing much about her, um, and did not grow up cooking, watching cooking shows, and she was not on TV when I started watching TV. So I really had almost no exposure to her except sort of what you know until my uh, my husband was stationed in a small town in Texas. Well, he was actually, he was stationed at Fort Hood, but we were living in a small town outside of Fort Hood where there were no restaurants. There were, you'd have to drive pretty far. And, um, and I did not know how to cook anything and he didn't know how to cook anything. And we couldn't order Uber Eats and we were very confused and eating a lot of cereal. And, one day my husband was like, well, let's make an omelet. And I said, that sounds impossible. And he pulled up the omelet episode of the French chef. And we watched it a few times and we made a lot of mistakes and a lot of burnt, sad scrambled eggs. But then we made an omelet and then we started watching more of her and started cooking and she did she made it approachable she made it easy sometimes not so easy there were things that like did not go so well but it really changed my life because I was really lonely at that point in time and uh my husband was gone a lot because of work and cooking really helped and Julia was like a friend so yeah, I it, she really meant a lot to me, and that was before uh, I ever had any idea that I could ever actually write on a show like Julia. 
Well, that's that's really lovely. And I feel, you know what, I always feel like so many of these Julia moments is Julia would have loved hearing them. And I think that, you know, that you're describing exactly the kind of thing that I feel like Julia felt was like the pinnacle of her success was those small moments where she could be helpful and meaningful to somebody through teaching. So that's. Yeah, she, and by the way, though, I can't make an omelet. I still can't. My husband is amazing at them. Mm, we'll have to work on that. Yeah, still my <laughs> my white whale. Oh, no. Well, don't <laughs> give up. Don't give up. All right. Well, Chris, Emily, thank you so much for joining us today and telling us all about Julia season two. Thanks, Todd. It was really thank fun to you. be here. Yes. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. For more, you can check out at Stream on Max on Instagram X. Facebook, and TikTok, and you can go to www.max.com to sign up to watch Julia if you're not already a subscriber. If watching Julia on Max or listening to all these comments about her shows makes you hungry to watch the original The French Chef, it is now streaming on Pluto TV, Plex, Freevee, YouTube, and Tubi, as well as on the PBS Living and PBS Documentary channels on Amazon. But wait, there's more. A new, beautiful edition of the French Chef Cookbook is out now from our friends at Knopf Cooks. It features a totally revamped layout and not-before-used photographs of Julia cooking the various dishes on set. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. Makes a great holiday gift. Please follow at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram and threads for all the latest news and events, I'm at T. Shulkin on Instagram and threads. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Download episodes wherever you find your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org and juliachildfoundation.org. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.